1: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 122, The Heights of Success. Last episode, we talked a bit about Owen's work with the Pope and the Church on an international basis, but we haven't really covered how successful he was with clergy members at home. This was key to a lot of what he was going to be able to do, as this would give him a basis for civil service and a diplomatic department. In 1402, Franciscan monks were accused of having raised money for Glendure in England. It was said that it took three different juries to find one that could finally convict these clergymen. All of the eight were accused and then were executed. Now, to be clear, this is the Middle Ages, and there were some very different ideas about what punishment meant and what it could mean to most people. And a lot of the worst deeds that had been practiced upon people certainly were not an exception in these eras of burnings, torture, drawing and quartering, dragging people, all of those kind of, in quotes, fun things. Uh, But nonetheless, this idea and concept was still considered to be a bit of a faux pas. You didn't kill clergymen, you know, killing the religious leaders of the community is always seen as kind of an ill omen. But the idea that the clergy were in England raising money to help Glyndor showed that there must have been a lot of discontent and a lot of willingness within the clergy to take the risk to actually go after and finance this project. In Wales, of course, this discontent was much more blatant. Priests and monks were slowly but surely being won over to the cause. Even Adam of Usk, that person who would pen a very pro-English document in later years after the rebellion had failed, followed his fellow clergymen into the support for Glyndwr and his rebels. Having these clergies on side was an important step for Owen. They gave him religious legitimacy, which would allow him to claim Wales as an independent state. It also had given him the backing of God for those that believed that God was willing to support those who were in leadership positions and had, you know, a stake in the matter, Uh, which, in all fairness, in the Middle Ages was probably the majority of the population. And whenever someone is achieving things and having great things happen to him is definitely going to be seen as more divinely blessed than someone who's losing, who can't seem to keep a job, who has trouble... You know, managing his money, or all the other things that are really going on for monarchs in this era, those not quite so divinely blessed people aren't necessarily looked on the same way. So, with that in mind, it also meant that he would have help, and that these community leaders were important enough that they could speak of and give to him support, both... In person and over the pulpit. The title clerk, as we know it, originated from the Latin clericus. During this period, most of the scholarship and writing was largely limited to the clergy. Because of this reality, clerk came to mean scholar, especially one who could read and, importantly, write. This meant that men could serve as notary, secretary, accountant, and recorder, all of which translated at a bureaucratic level in kingdoms across Europe. Effectively, our idea of clerical work simply comes from the work that these clerics had been doing. And these roles, because of their education, of course, were being held by clerics. And in a lot of cases, that led to conflict both within the church as to whether they should be doing these kind of things, and also in conflict with their various leaders. Monarchs, weren't terribly fond of religious people telling them what to do. Even as they were close to the levers of power, some of those clergymen faced consequences for that. We'll see this with Thomas Beckett in England, and we'll see it again under Henry VIII. You cross monarchs carefully, even in this period. And certainly that wasn't an exception for the religious leadership. So, as we talk about that, Owen began to acquire land and power as the revolt carried on, especially in 1404 when their tactics had changed and they had come from controlling the land and controlling areas with guerrilla tactics to holding towns and castles. Having an educated class to carry on all sorts of the basics of rule was massively important. As we saw under Llewellyn, the clergy were the diplomats, the ambassadors, not just because they were literate, but also because they had an understanding of how to work within different societies. They could cross over to various places because they spoke various languages and, of course, spoke one of the most important languages at the time, which was Latin, the written language of most of the Western world. They also, because of their... Links to God had protection of being men of God, something that, at least for the most part, gave them some sense of protection against foreign powers and enemies who might want to do the other power harm. So, in that respect, they were treated differently and treated more unique. Because certainly, you don't want to have the Pope on the wrong side of you for having killed a bunch of priests trying to negotiate against you. And of course, Even with all that, it's still a risky proposition as you're still left to the mercy of a king who could kill at a whim if he felt so inclined. But it still meant that the clergy would have easier times than others. They would be in more powerful positions, as I mentioned, so thus would have better financing, better food, better links to power to create even more steps for themselves. They would give their local churches, cathedrals, and religious units more power and wealth and better opportunity to create much more of that to get the better land to build bigger and more elaborate buildings to get the funding to create these things in the middle ages we have to understand that the, the great cathedrals and the great projects that we remember largely come a little later than this but for the most part they're starting in this process and in part as a reaction to the amount of wealth that the church is gathering and this is one of those ways And it's certainly important to keep that in mind, that while, yes, they're serving a very important function, they are still carrying out something that's important to themselves. And that's something to keep in the back of your mind when you think about these things. Also, a government led by Owen would need men of this experience, people who understood collecting taxes, how to create wealth for a kingdom, And to protect these precious funds from misappropriation, obviously priests were given some sense as their role that they would be more trustworthy and more respectful and less likely to swindle governments, even if that wasn't necessarily completely always true. And given that imperative, this is the reason why Owen needed them and why he worked so hard to sway them to his side. Owen was preparing Wales for a transition to a new government, even as the war carried on. He and his advisors were convinced that they were on the precipice of success, and knowing this, they felt they had to transition the country as quickly as possible. So, as the vacuum of English control and power waned, and or the vacuum itself grew, but the actual power they had waned, you would see this as an opportunity for the Welsh system to step into place. This would eventually lead us to Macholleth and the first meeting of the Senate, or Parliament. They would meet a minimum of two times during the rebellion, although some would suggest more than four different times, depending on the situation, between 1404 and 1409. Unfortunately, we're not fundamentally certain of all of this, although we know little about what these parliaments were, nor completely what they were about, we do know that Glindor called four representatives from each commote in Wales to his parliament in Harlech, following King Howell Thaw's uh, example, or at least from the documents of the law of Howell, which made up much of Owen's basis for government. This was kept as a copy that he had had in his family home, whether he'd read it a lot or was governed by it, I I can't say, I don't think anyone can, but certainly if it was there and he uses it as the basis for what he sees as the Welsh governmental system, there must be some linkages to that. I mean, we must remember that Howell was seen as a ancestor of Owains, so for him, it would be important to him it is said that in that first parliament, Owen was crowned Prince of Wales, or, as he sometimes called, Owen IV. We will revisit the situation and how things worked under these administrations in later episodes, and we'll talk a little bit more about that title and about how it was carried forward and presented. But for now, let's go back to focusing in on the here and now. In England, his opponent, Henry IV, was broke. His government was going back to Edward III, had been carrying on wars for over 50 years against the French, Scots, Irish, and now the Welsh. The cost in taxes had left the exchequer unable to raise funds, and the loss of the Percys meant they could no longer lean on their financial wealth or military support. As mentioned previously, this led the Parliament in 1403 to seize control of the kingdom's finances, which meant that they controlled much of what could be done in the war. Something that would create, from a more modern perspective, an idea on what monarchs are supposed to do and how they are usually spending money. But keep in mind that having the oversight of elected representatives likely may owe some of its origins to this, but this was really a point of desperation for Henry. It was not something he wanted. In fact, the kings of England to this stage had always fought against parliamentary control. And, I mean, they fought wars over this, so that was not going to change easily. The idea that they would have to be managed by the parliament had never sat well with them. But Desperate Times called for desperate measures, and this for sure was a desperate measure. at FactorMeals.com/WelshHistoryPod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
0: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.
1: This largely meant that the English were then forced to remain in defensive positions, protecting the towns and castles, while effectively sacrificing all the rest of the land. At this stage, lands controlled by the King and Prince of England were now contributing no taxes to the English. It shows how far things had fallen, and how little the English could control outside of those little pockets. While the Welsh now moved into a more aggressive posture, seizing what I would guess would be to Owen and his cohorts an obvious advantage. They would then carry out more proper campaigns, campaigns that would be much more familiar to a lot of medieval soldiers in this era, ones of conquest and of more than just carrying out guerrilla tactics and dash and grabs of various communities. Many in Wales were seeing where things were going and were making up their own minds. In Brecon, for example, the citizens there, who normally paid their taxes to the king, refused to do so without the defeat of the rebels in Glamorgan. This forced the English to at least try to accomplish this, which they basically failed fairly miserably over the spring and into the summer. During the winter and spring of 1404, the Welsh continued to put pressure on fortified towns and castles across the country. Crickheath Castle, built initially by Llewellyn the Great, and substantially upgraded by Edward I after the conquest, fell in March of 1404. The Welsh forces took the castle, burned the town, and destroyed much of what the castle was at that point, to the point where it was never occupied again, and much of what we see now, if you go to Crick is pretty much what was left after Owen got done with it, save for wind and erosion and all those other fun things that have happened in the 600 years since. But nonetheless, what was left of the main building is pretty much the same, which is not a whole lot. In the north, much of the English castles were struggling in the face of Welsh pressure. Harlech and Aberystwyth were both under a long-term siege. In April of 1404, this would work out to be a very significant month for the rebellion, Carnarvon Castle sent an appeal for help to the English government, as it was under siege by the French at sea and the Welsh on the land. The French would launch forces on the coasts in England in this period, as well they would receive help on that front from the Bretons, which we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute. Owen's negotiations with the French must have begun in earnest during 1404, earlier than what we see happening later in the summer. It would make sense at that point, when Owen is taking on airs of a legitimate leader and a true heir to his country's throne, he would go back to those countries that he had asked for help with earlier, and mostly the aim being that he was seeking a peace with the English, and the best way to do that was to defeat them in battle. While we have little to go on before the summer of 1404, as I said, one bit of proof of this increase of activity in the Channel by French fleets, who appeared to be trying to tie up English naval forces across the Channel, would show, to some degree, that there must have been some tacit alliance or at least tacit acceptance of the situation, or just simply the French wanted to cause the English even more trouble. Breton, French, and Castellan forces worked against the English in very aggressive fashions at sea, forcing the English to spend resources protecting their English flank while dealing with problems on their western one. In fact, they went so far as to actually invade small pockets of areas in breton something that would certainly be seen as very provocative in that time period but nonetheless they were trying to hit back at an enemy that was obviously trying to cause them more stress trying to stop them from actually carrying out the war against the welsh a frenchman by the name of jean de espagne who patrolled the irish sea spent it harassing the english and supporting the welsh Bretons, and French troops that were at war in the country. This brought out the English Navy from Bristol on a wild goose chase trying to stop the French in the area. Now, it's important to note during this period that the French didn't have an actual firm alliance with Wales. Owen had not had an official meeting, there wasn't any official status to speak of, but yet there must have been some tacit understanding something that would have allowed the Bretons and the French to justify getting involved and becoming this pest, so much so that they actually sent troops into Wales. Now, one of the suggestions that was made by one of the academics is maybe this was done to kind of see where things were, kind of understand how serious to take this rebellion and really how much the Welsh were able to hold on to the territory they were attacking you know how legitimate was this battle because of course the French had been involved with the Welsh before they had definitely tried to help get them liberated in the past even not even more than 25 years 30 years ago so they're not without attempts at intervention previously But nonetheless, this is much bigger than those previous attempts and much more invasive than I think the English would have been happy about. This intervention would, of course, be key to the Welsh victories in a number of places, including the liberation of Anglesey. Returning now to the April of 1404, during this period, Harlech Castle fell to the Welsh once more. This time, not to be abandoned like what had happened under the Tudors in 1400, starvation, sickness, and other maladies had relegated its defenders to a paltry 21 troops. Under the circumstances, the English gave up the castle. They couldn't hold out, they had nothing left to fight with, and realistically were down to effectively starving themselves to death. So on those occasions, you can't continue. A key to all this, of course, was the fact that the French naval forces were keeping supply lines from being restocked, which would have kept Harlech in English hands. Harlech became a key point for Wales. It was the seat of Owen's monarchy for four years, and during that period was an imposing location featuring some of the most solid defenses in Wales. Of course, because its position on a cliff edge, it was something that could be isolated as proven by the Welsh twice to this stage and later by the English when they finally achieved the end of the rebellion. But for now, it was the center stage of the Welsh revival and another linchpin in bolstering Owen's right to rule. By May, Owen and his advisors had felt they could reach out to their other allies in earnest, now as a nation rather than just a rebellion. Having the clergy on board meant that Owen was able to administer a newly- Acquired towns and villages in a manner that was bureaucratic as well as thought out. No longer would he simply be a guerrilla fighter. He was representing himself and his nation as a true country. In this, his timing, as usual in this period, was impeccable. By the summer of 1404, Owen had sent ambassadors Griffith Young and John Hamner to France to negotiate a more formal alliance. Luckily for him, the oiliness, who were hostile to Henry over his previous affronts, were now fully in Owen's camp. France was still under a negotiated truce with England, which might have called for a lull in the Hundred Years' War, but certainly didn't end the hostilities and certainly left the French wanting to get their own back on the English, and the desire to do so only grew as time went on. The death of Philip the Bold, a member of the powerful Burgundian faction, in April of 1404—remember that month being very fortuitous—left the English without a sympathetic ally, or at least one who was in no means or desire to actually fight a war against the English. The Burgundians were some of the most faithful of the French to the English cause, whereas the Orleanists were not, and with them ascending into leadership positions at this key point, it meant that Owen was in a position to carry on the fight with the backing of the French and the discussions that they would have over the summer of 1404 would lead to the continuing of that process. At this stage in this war, this is actually the point where we see many begin to think that Owen was ordained by God to win this battle and that Wales was lost to the English. Obviously, in the English camps, that would have been a signal of despair, a signal of defeat, something that would certainly hurt morale in areas which needed to be kept up and defense needed to be continued. But for the Welsh, that would have been a sign of pleasure, a sign of, as I said, a significant sense that this was something ordained by God. Now, the other ally that the Welsh were able to count on was Brittany. Brittany had been a semi-independent kingdom created in part by a uniting of three different uh, Celtic kingdoms. Now, depending on who you believe and which academic is talking about it, Brittany was considered to be either a place where uh, there was an exodus of Britons, thus the name, or just effectively a, a kind of a, a sub-kingdom which had links to Britain through trade and through culture. So in that respect, it's, it's hard to say for sure, but we do know and, and do understand that obviously there were Celtic links. The language is linked to the Welsh language. There was a lot of connections which had existed long before this period. And as we reached the Middle Ages, in the Hundred Years' War, Brittany had fought on the side of the French against the English and were consistently, up until 1488, against the English and for the French. And, of course, were people who had held high respect for those in Britain who were fighting against the English. And so... They were a big part of this support. They were key to the battles. And certainly the English knew that. That's why they attacked them in 1404. They have been, as I said, a key area, one that they could count on for troops, for naval forces, and for different sort of protections. So with that, they became another key ally in this process. And if Wales could get France on board, at the end of the day, the real hope was was to force Henry to the table, make him bargain and give them what the English had been forced to give the Scottish so many years before, their real and total independence. Now, one could go back and look with hindsight and say that even if the Welsh had won, and even if Owen had become the king or the prince of wales reality says at some point this was all going to come back because much like scotland wales couldn't hold out against a consistently well fought war by the english and no one would argue that to this point henry the fourth's war against the welsh had been very well fought so in that respect they would always have struggled against england but The reality of it is, is with this support, they had hoped to get to, at least at this point, a level of independence and a level of separation that would at least allow them a fighting chance against the English. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you are having a good day uh, wherever you are. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Uh, we have a long way to go with Owen, but uh, we're, we're still in the midst of the high point in his achievements, and uh, that's not going to stop anytime soon. So uh, until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day.
0: This has been a Distractions Media production, and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets.